to Maritime AgCast, the podcast dedicated to the farmers and the farm community of the Maritimes. We will discuss all things related to the livestock industry with local, regional and national guests, as well as keep you up to date with current markets and industry events. Today, we will be joined by Stephen Roach of Acer Consulting and Amy Higgins of Maritime Beef Council to discuss knowledge and tech transfer, also known as KTT. Stephen is the Director and Principal Consultant for Acer Consulting and has a vision for improving animal health through applied research and creative communication. Acer is driven by his passion and interdisciplinary skill set, which blends epidemiological research, agricultural extension, and health promotion. Stephen earned his PhD in epidemiology from the Department of Population Medicine at the Ontario Vet College. He also holds an MSc in epidemiology and BSc in zoology from the University of Guelph. His mission is to develop and deliver evidence-based solutions to motivate on-farm change and improve animal health and welfare. Amy is the Maritime Beef Council's industry coordinator. She raises purebred Angus cattle on the family farm in Quispamsips, New Brunswick, and also operates a veggie box program. Amy is also the president of the New Brunswick and Maritime Angus Associations. So Amy and Steve, thanks very much for being with us on Maritime AgCast today. Looking forward to our conversation. Steve, maybe I'll start with you. What does a regular day in in your life look like with ACER as far as coordinating research and extension activities across your multiple projects and groups that you work with? Yeah, thanks for having me, Brad. So a pretty diverse uh, day, um, in most days anyway. Lots of uh, time on email uh, in front of the computer or over the phone with, as you said, um, you know, stakeholders that that can be anywhere from farmers all the way to to executives working on various private or government organizations, all with the focus on on uh, animal agriculture. Typically, if we are not focusing on trying to figure out how to get new research off the ground or, or working on ongoing research activities, we're focused focused on trying to get the results of previous research out. And so that means we're working on developing resources from fact sheets to podcasts to videos and, and anything you can dream up in between. Outside of that, it's a lot more of trying to understand our audience, which I think we're going to talk a little bit more. You know, what makes our farmers and, and their advisors tick in terms of preferences to access information? What are their challenges? What are their problems? What do they need more information on? And trying to fa- answer some of those questions if we can. So pretty diverse set of questions and challenges each day, but that's that's a little bit of what we focus on. And Amy, listeners are familiar with you, but give us a little bit of a recap of what the Maritime Beef Council Day looks like. Yeah, also same uh, same sort of things as Steve had mentioned, just trying to, uh, I guess, herd cats in terms of just making sure everybody knows what's going on, trying to gr- grab ideas from the various stakeholders uh, and seeing kind of weeding through things to see what might work, what won't. Or what we've got resources for and what we don't is probably more uh, more apt. So lots of lots of email, lots of Zoom meetings now uh, that everybody's kind of gotten used to the the new world of Zoom. So the travel time and and car time has been reduced a little bit, which is is good and bad. Now that we're getting more face to face, even with some of these planning sessions and stuff, it's it's all good. And yeah, trying to track down venues and speakers and and some of those types of things, and then the promotions that go along with it. And because we're doing sometimes concur- not concurrent events, but a lot of events happening in this sort of winter season, there's some ch- differences in in deadlines and timelines and all of that sort of stuff. So it's just a lot of a lot of balls in the air that uh, that are trying to be juggled to try and straighten everything out. So. Uh, the, the days do get quite variable in terms of 
of what's getting done. I'm going to ask probably the most simple but most complicated question at the same time is how do we focus on farmer and industry needs? So where does the the KTT and extensions start? Which end of the, the continuum do we start on to get the best results for our farmers? Yeah, good question, Brad. I can maybe jump in and Amy, I, I know you've got lots of thoughts on this too. I, I think more and more, so I guess traditionally we have often thought about, you know, come up with the research question, do the research, come up with good quality results, publish the paper. And in some sort of schools of thought, we've had researchers, typically ones that are engaged with industry, you know, directly boots on the ground. You know, there is some focus on getting the results out. The traditional approaches, right, are publish that literature, you know, in peer-reviewed manuscripts, presented at some conferences, maybe make some posters. And if other organizations want to take their information and package it more nicely than, than they can. We've other got more basic research, you know, lab um, folks in the lab, for example, that don't tend to think a lot more about how does this apply to the farm? They might be thinking about it, but they don't focus, I'd say, uh, and I'm generalizing here, but they don't focus on getting that results, those results right out on the farm. And we have traditionally relied on extension specialists, people out there employed by government, employed by other institutions, you know, not-for-profits and some private organizations that take that information and get it to their clients or their folks, their membership. That's been, I suppose, a bit of a traditional perspective. More and more, we're starting to think of this as a cycle where it's not necessarily a beginning and end, but we're sort of constantly going through this, you know, this cycle where we're trying to, by being more engaged with farmers and industry, we understand, you know, the nuances of their challenges, their problems, the issues and what they know today, using that to not only inform how we talk to them and what information we provide, but to stimulate new research and where we go. So for me, it should really start at the beginning and the end of a given research project. It should continue to inform the next step of research and our communication approaches with our farmers and our and their advisors. Amy, I don't know if you'd have thoughts related to that. Yes, Stephen. And that was a really great kind of segue into this conversation of what happens after the research, because that's really where like I've, I've got a a little bit of a science background, but I am not by no means a, a researcher by trade. So what we do, what we're trying to do is figure out before a research project really ever gets a stamp of industry support is to figure out how those results are going to get transferred after the fact. And there's been a lot of changes in the funding mechanisms and, and a little bit more focus on collaboration than maybe there has in the past with a few specific funders that I can think of in, in specifically, but I think at the end of the day, gone are the days of a researcher comes up with an idea or a hypothesis on their own without any any collaboration. The funding performs the research and then it dies with the paper. If if that's so if that's so bold, because I mean there was that had been sort of a little bit of the past was there it was hyper competitive for some of those research dollars. The great work was getting done, but nobody really knew about it. So I I think now we're getting a bit to maybe a bit more common sense as the pendulum comes back to making sure that those research projects do have an industry need and that industry need also incorporates that whole how do we tell the producers what we we found out on the start end of the project as opposed to kind of waiting as an afterthought so so that that's been a little bit that's changed um obviously there's been 
lots of changes on extension and each even provincial government's extension strategies and all over Canada and not just the Maritimes alone. And there's been, again, a little bit of a pendulum swing there in terms of the approach to investment. And some of it's good for a change and some of it's um, maybe we've got to get back to, but there's uh, there's definitely been some change there. So I don't know, Brad, if that answered the original question, but those are just sort of my thoughts tagging on to what Steve had mentioned. Yeah, definitely that gets us in the general direction I'm looking to go here. And you both brought up something that I think is very important, and that's the idea of sharing the results, or at least how we're going to share the results in advance of the research being done, whether it's exploratory research or whether it's applied research. And in the 15-ish, 20 years that I've been around now, um, I think one of the things that has maybe changed the way we think about that is how much more or at least a proportion of those projects is being funded by industry. So as we see, see those cost shares increase for industry research, the farmers have said, if we're going to put money in this, we we want to know the results. We want to see the results on farm. And I think that might have been part of the, the reason for some of that changing. And Amy, you referenced too, like as extension resources get dearer and dearer across the country, then we have to make sure that we're aligning all of those things at the same time. Any thoughts on you know, looking at that and, and whether or not the funding mechanisms have had a greater influence on how research and KTT are conducted, or maybe maybe I'm just making things up. I don't I don't know that you're making things up. And again, Steve's probably got more breadth of exposure to some various uh, various funders than than I would have access to. But the few that we utilize, uh, there has been some of the comments that we that we hear back from research that has been declined on or sent back for revision or whatnot has been get your collaborators in check and make sure that there's not other people doing the same work elsewhere and kind of revising some of those KTT things. So I don't know, I'll throw it over to you, Steve, because you probably have a better a better background on more of the that research scope. I know, I think that's fair. I do agree with your initial comments too, Brad, about I, I think we're seeing a, an evolution here of everyone's vying for dollars. It's a very competitive process, it's certainly not getting less competitive in terms of number of researchers, you know, and perhaps the different places researchers are coming from that are looking for dollars, you know, and not to mention that research continues to get more expensive, like most things in, in our world. And so what I think we're seeing more of an expectation is whether it's a government funding call national in scope or provincial in scope or or some international calls or even ones that are much smaller is there's not just an expectation of bringing partner dollars to the table industry dollars to the table anymore there is more and more of an expectation of industry engagement and involvement and what that can look like is sure involving them in terms of ktt plan uh, or an extension plan how we're going to get those results out but more and more there's discussion about well how will you involve you know insert commodity group here um, throughout the research. And that might look like, you know, something that I'm a big fan of doing now for all of the research projects that I do is creating a producer committee. That committee can be made up of board members, you know, producers right on the ground or, or other advisors that have a perspective, whether that perspective is subject matter expertise or experience in the given topic we're researching, or they're a producer out there that may benefit from or certainly have impact on the tone and tenor and the approach that we take in terms of 
of conducting your research. They bring a practical lens that matters in terms of the end use of the of, of much of the research I'm involved in anyway. So I think more and more we're starting to look favorably on that type of research, recognizing, hey, if we want to get this research applied at the end of the day, who's better to involve than the actual folks that we're looking, you know, members of our audience in and of themselves. So for me, those are some of the pieces I think we're going to see a little bit more evolution towards. The other thing that maybe still a bit of a bugbear for me when we look at funding applications or when I sit in rooms of committees where we're evaluating applications is there is a lot of folks that are still researching getting the feedback. We need you to trim your budget down so we can spread the dollars across a variety of projects. And where is the area that most researchers trim budget down, whether they're asked to or whether they have the luxury of looking at their own budget? It's KTT. And that's the first thing because, of course, they've got to prioritize being able to do the research in the first place. And so we're still seeing extension, the resources for extension and the prioritization of it, I think, as lower on the totem pole, so to speak, than conduct of the actual research itself. And that makes sense because these are researchers making these decisions. So I think it's important to call that out. That's a really good point. In upcoming events on February 25th, the Maritime Beef Council will hold Atlantic Beef School on herd health management. Check out their website for more information at maritimebeef.ca. The annual Ballamore Farm Thickness Cells Bowl Sale will occur on March 18th. Follow them on Facebook to stay up to date on the sale. The Maritime Beef Testing Society will hold its 50th annual breeding stock sale on April 1st, 2023. For updates on the sales, please visit their website regularly at maritimebeeftestation.ca. Additionally, the Maritime Beef Testing Society will be holding a banquet to celebrate their 50th sale on March 31st, 2023. Please visit their website for more information on how to purchase tickets. Wolstock East Fiber and Market Village will once again take place September 13th to 16th, and vendor applications are now available. For applications, stay up to date on this event. Please visit their website at sisterhoodfibers.com. In upcoming feeder sales, feeder sales occur this winter at 10 a.m. on the following Thursdays, February 16th, March 16th, and April 11th. Check out atlanticstockyards.com for full sale schedule and booking information. In available programs, the 2023 Nova Scotia Agricultural Programs, visit novascotia.ca forward slash programs. Stay up to date. And the New Brunswick cattle producers have multiple programs available, including the Beef Herd Renewal and Improvement Program, the Beef Rotational Grazing Initiative, and many more. Check out their website for more information at gnb.ca forward slash agriculture. The next thing I'd like to talk about a little bit is, you know, how we remove some of that burden or time in structuring those research committees or structuring those research programs to include provincial extension staff, private extension staff, industry associations that may have some of those resources and do that up front so that it doesn't become a a burden and also not just a burden, but making sure we're sharing those resources and maximizing those resources as well. Um, and, you know, one of the things that I think about all the time when I think about researchers delivering extension is something you just said, Steve, they're they're not extension specialists, they're researchers. And I don't know how many times I've left a workshop or a conference and talked to farmers and said, I don't have a darn idea what they just told me. Right. So it's often that translation of the information from research results to the farmer and giving that most appropriate person the tools to deliver the information, even though they may not be a research person at all. 
Amy, yeah. you want to jump in first? Yeah, I th- well, I, I guess what comes to mind is when I think about KTT, that, that the KTT stands for, when I first was introduced to that concept was knowledge technology transfer, right? Like that's what the KTT stood for. And I think in, in more recent conversations, there's been a little bit of an evolution to reference KTT as as knowledge translation transfer, as opposed to knowledge tech transfer, because it is really translating um, the science into what can be understood by by the producer. So I, that that's my only comment there, I guess, and I'll, I'll throw it over to Steve, but that was just something that kind of struck a chord with me here in some recent conversations. Yeah, no, I think it's a good point. And that in and of itself sort of signifies a rather important evolution of of the thinking around extension, which is still the word I tend to use because I think it tends to be most accessible for all folks in industry. But the terms mean different things. And over the years, we've seen a major evolution in terms of our thinking about how we go about doing this. And that's somewhat commensurate with the change we've seen in funding structures and approaches to extension. I'm in Ontario here and maybe be just a relevant kind of quick example or story for you here is, you know, in the 90s, the government, the provincial government was looking at opportunities to trim budget. We had a conservative budget, that, a premier that was looking for um, opportunities to to save dollars. They quickly focused in on um, the huge expense of uh, having provincial extension staff all across the province and really saw a major cost and not any demonstrable or clear, tangible benefit. They don't see what we're getting out of those those dollars. And that's not just because there was no benefit, it's because it's really difficult to quantify and measure. And so we saw a defunding of the public extension system here, and it's not come back. The government didn't just completely omit any resource investment into extension, but they changed their approach and their approach was to essentially try and provide resources to advisors and researchers who are generating the information to get it out there. And to your point, Brad, many of them did not become researchers to be communication specialists or to figure out how they can turn all of their great novel research into a fact sheet and a video and a podcast, nor do they have time. We want our researchers and our subject matter experts focusing on pushing the science forward and giving us those new answers and solving really complex challenging problems that we have today and will continue to become more challenging and complex as we go forward. So in short, we need people that are either viewing themselves as generalists and supportive of of translating information that comes from our research institutions onto farm. And we need, it's a specialty in and of itself in trying to understand how we communicate and work with farmers. And um, most of us, at least in, in this circle and our listeners appreciate that what can be done in a scientific setting is not always reality, Right. And so whether that's, you know, the mindset of our farmers and trying to figure out what do I prioritize? And then the fact that most of these things, best management practices aren't applied in a vacuum. There's so many other things going on that contribute and attribute whether or not success is going to be had. So at the end of the day, I think we need a real focus on people that can be, well, I'll use the term brokers, facilitators. We need people that can broker conversations, relationships, information, and knowledge, and put this together with the people that are responsible for applying it and bring in those subject matter experts or the information they're producing when it's necessary and help foster and facilitate that conversation. So you just brought up an idea that I've talked about with some of my farm management and economist friends all the time is we in agriculture and farming can't make decisions in vacuums. And one of the things that I think fundamentally we see a lot is, 
you know, your nutritionist comes in, if you're a, a dairy producer or a cattle producer, she produces and says, this is how you need to adjust your ration. Well, that's going to have economic implications. It's going to have a, agronomic implications, but we rarely see the nutritionist, agronomist, accountant all sit in the same room and really advise producers on how to come up with the best results, right? Because it's fine to say you need 16% forage, but what do I need to do agronomically and management practice-wise to get there, right? So, and And the same thing is true on research and extension is we can't make one decision and ignore the rest of the decisions we need to make or the rest of the issues that we need to address. No, we can't. And um, it, it's, I mean, you start to really start to paint the picture and appreciate what farmers have to deal with when trying to to pull all these pieces together. And, you know, and then I've been in committees, I've said it myself, where it's like, why don't we see farmers adopting these things? Well, hey, it's not as simple as just looking at that BMP. And by the way, not everyone thinks that's a BMP and apply that on their farm, right? And so we need to be cognizant and, and sometimes get out of the quote unquote ivory tower of the office and, and, and appreciate the complexity of making any decision and any change. And by the way, uh, determining what was the the key piece or key change that ended up giving us the result. I was involved in a project that sort of took this approach a couple of years ago, Brad, and looked at lameness in dairy cattle and said, huge issue. We feel like we've made next to no movement in terms of actually the the prevalence of, of lameness on the average farm. Uh, we know a lot more about it over the last 30, 40 years of researching it, but we still can't seem to make a lot of progress. And so we got the dairy farmer with the nutritionist, hoof trimmer, veterinarian, and everyone sat down and over a series of meetings over a course of several months developed a lameness plan together. And it was interesting to have most of the advisors say, I never did this for one reason or another. I didn't want to make the time or it wasn't, you know, it's up to my my client, the producer to decide if that's something that they want to do. And some others assumed that the other advisors in, in the conversation would want to be part of that conversation. And so I think we need to break down some barriers that come with assumptions about how we work together and maybe revisit how we actually service our clients. If I'm thinking about this from an advisor perspective and what's best for our producers. And if I'm talking to farmers, I think our farmers need to perhaps be a little bit more forthright in advocating for, I need our advisors to come together to provide a a solution that considers everyone's perspective. So to me, that's just a couple of thoughts there. And I'd, I'd echo some of that. And we've had some recent conversations around this as we talk about forage planning, get your nutritionist maybe in the same room with your agronomist because they don't necessarily have the same skill set or they need to understand what the limitations of of the others as it relates to nutrients binding up in the soil to not get it into your into your grass or your stored forages so i think that's a that's probably a piece that is that is missing because not only have we because of the shift in extension services and some of that pendulum swing we've also lost some of that knowledge that's gone back with it as as folks retire and this, that, or the other thing. And there's this gap, especially we found with the introduction of off-calf and some of the uh, the dollars that are related to finding some of these experts. There's just not very many of people specializing in some of these little niche fields because it's been kind of underfunded and ignored for a little while. So now we've we're back to square one and we're trying we're wondering where the human resources are. So I think having that advisory group talking to each other is is super valuable because the veterinarian doesn't know what your books look like and your accountant doesn't know how to treat uh maybe a problem that's 
losing you a lot of calves. So that's just my two cents. I appreciate both of those responses. And maybe one of the things I'd like to talk about next is, you know, how extension has changed a lot over the last 10, 15 years. You know, I, I can think when I first started post-university, pretty much the only information available online was through a land-grant university in the U.S., or maybe through one of the universities here in Canada. But now we seem just to be inundated with available information, whether that is continues to be through what I call trusted sources. So ministries and universities and other, you know, we have Perennia here in Nova Scotia. That's an extension crown corporation. Now that we have so much information, how do we start sifting through it to know what is good information and what is bad information from the digital world, right? I can create a, a website today if I'm crafty enough that says I'm the University of Nova Scotia Agriculture and start posting information. But you know, how does Steve and Amy know that that's good information, whether or not I'm a credible source? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's sort of the challenge of our generation and every generation following us as, as this becomes more and more the way to consume information, or at least an easy, easy opportunity to access information. Um, I think there's plenty of rules out there from, you know, communications folks that, that are probably a little bit more knowledgeable than me on best practices here. But for me, some of the things is to first acknowledge this is tough. Very few of us have the time and know how to evaluate every piece of information. And I think of a Twitter or something like that, where things are flying around all the time and everyone's got an opinion, right? And so it's easy to say rely on credible sources, but how do we actually identify that, right? And I think in the world of social media, and I know, Brad, you may want to get there uh, in a little bit more detail in terms of social media, it's a dog's breakfast from my perspective. It's very easy to portray yourself as something you're not, and it's very difficult for any one of us to really discern that in 140 characters or whatever it might be. And so if you're someone out there that's looking to to try and access credible, reliable information, I think the place we go we start with is reliable organizations that uh, have made it their mandate to support farmers or, or farming associations. And so you look to maybe some of the government and extension services. You look to maybe, uh, in my world, I look to the veterinary associations a lot. I look to organizations that have credible individuals. If I'm looking at a website for a private company, for example, I'm looking at the about page. Who's actually writing here? If I can't figure out who's behind the message, I'm not interested. I also then want want to sort of be, think critically about what I'm being told by whomever I'm told. There's plenty of MDs, DVMs, PhDs all over the place that are a little offside in some of the things they have to say. So just because they've got letters behind their name doesn't mean you just universally trust what they have to say. So we need to continue to build our ability to think critically and about what we're accessing and who we're accessing it from, which means having a bit of skepticism when we receive information and seeking confirmation from other hopefully credible sources, which means sort of ground truthing uh, what you're hearing with other trusted advisors or sources of information you know, essentially ask questions and continue to be skeptical about what you're receiving. And when in doubt, I think look to the organizations that have some credibility and, and autonomy behind their names. Uh, and if nothing else, make sure you can verify who this is coming from and whether or not they've got the back the background and expertise to be able to be commenting on some of this information. And I would echo all of that. I think that things like you know, beefresearch.ca or some of the industry publications are, are a great way to start. And I do think that that whole concept of critical thinking skills and just thinking like, who is putting this out? Where is the website from? If it's from a .org or a, a whatnot, you can kind of, you can answer a lot of questions by just thinking a little bit to who's backing this and, and really what the 
what the intentions might be, but it's, it is difficult. And I, and I think sometimes it is just having maybe that generalist or somebody to bounce it off of, to be like, Hey, I heard this. What are your thoughts? Instead of just saying, this is fact. So, so I think that's something that just in general, I think our, our world and, and the, and society in general could get much better at instead of just trusting everything that, that you see on a Twitter handle that gets taken for gospel. And I'm glad that you folks led me down this path because this is what I, what part of the crux of the, the issue is here, right? Is I have a famous saying, maybe not so famous outside of my office, but you know, every jerk with a keyboard is not necessarily an expert. Um, so why do I believe them? Should I believe them? Are other people saying these things and not to say that determines whether someone's right or wrong, but again, I'm a scientist, but not a researcher. Like there should be that, that confirmation of seeing things more than once. And there's the old adage, nothing that you hear and half that you see being the person that's scoping that information out yourself to make sure that it's answering the questions you want from a reliable source. You've both touched on social media. And I think that's maybe the crux of the majority of the problems is I think it's both a blessing and a curse in the way that we connect with each other or one another now. And a lot of folks I follow on Twitter are are egg folks and you know they'll fire out a question and their egg folks will respond. But sometimes the questions that get asked and the responses they get don't always make sense. And particularly in the world of animal health. So you see a lot of advice floating around animal health that isn't coming from a veterinarian, maybe isn't even coming from an experienced farmer. And that's when I start to get the jitters is somebody starting to give vet advice that is not a vet. And in social media, because we talk about network, if you build a trusted network of people, then in the old world, it might have been, and, and I mean, this still happens, 100% still happens, but in the coffee shop, for example. So if you if you go to the coffee shop and you're like, oh, well, this had this happen, and you could at any given time, depending on the coffee shop you're in, in Canada, at any given time, you could get seven different responses from seven of your different neighbors. And because of your relationship with those neighbors, there might be some that you immediately discard because maybe you don't think that that particular neighbor, their production system doesn't match your production system, perhaps. So you immediately discard that because that's not my jam and I don't really trust that advice. And there might be another that of a producer that you respect and, and you think that they're doing all the good things and maybe that is your advice that you that you take. And there's some in there mixed around with the seven different opinions that you would take with a grain of salt. But that old coffee shop mentality, I think you should transfer that because if you don't really know who's giving you advice off of the internet, <laughs> which is what some of these networks have become, is they've been become networks of people who you may or may not know and with backgrounds that you definitely don't know. And I think it's just important to kind of to temper that with what feedback you're getting, because really the advice has, is as good as what you're paying for it. So if you think you're paying, you're saving money because you don't want a vet to come out, then you're paying nothing for advice that may or may not work. And the people who are giving that advice are giving it based on their single experience and basically like research study of with a sample size of one. So I think those are just things to keep in mind. And it's not, there might be some really good nuggets and some really good advice in there somewhere, but without 
having that lens that can kind of bridge the good from the bad. Um, there's just so much of it and it's really difficult to do. So I don't know, Steve, if I've, I'm on track there, but, uh, but that's sort of what I think of it. No, I think that's great. It's one thing that I find helps discern for me the difference between someone that's maybe got a substantial amount of information on a topic and can maybe advise me versus someone that doesn't. And this doesn't always work, but but it is the answer to most questions is never, almost never black and white. And so the answer becomes yes, but or no, but. And it's the folks that tend to be the most authoritative about the right answer or the BMP or the solution that I tend to be a little bit wary on because it very little in science is so black and white, so cut and dry. And so the folks that, that, most often are the subject matter experts appreciate that there's a lot more nuance and a lot more context to to any recommendation or any answer. And they tend to be, you know, to desire to share that context rather than just providing sort of a, you know, yes, move on, no, move on. And you see that when you look in social media, for example, to bring it back to that sort of area is you see all of these experts in COVID is a great example, right? We see all these doctors clamoring to to social media and many talk, many other people commenting on on COVID restrictions and things like this, most of the ones that are trying to offer credible advice have these huge, you know, one of 25 tweets, you know, that that you have to read through the whole entire thing because they're trying to provide the context opposed to just saying COVID lockdowns don't work and move on, for example. So it's interesting. The other thing I think that's important to understand in the information era in social media is that we are all um, subject to the algorithm. And I don't want to get too down the rabbit hole, so to speak, but we are just as as Amy talked about, we are curating our own network. In the coffee shop, we have the ability to discern who we're talking to a little bit more, but we are creating our own echo chamber, depending on how diverse and how, uh, you know, multifaceted our our coffee shop mates are. When we're online, we're subject to a much bigger network and an algorithm that is not focused, let's be honest, in providing us quality information. What it's focused on is engagement. It's focused on your eyeballs and stay, keeping your eyeballs on the screen. How does it do that? Well, it considers what are you spending the most amount of time on and curating that more and more. It can be an echo chamber. It can be a self-fulfilling prophecy, and it's feeding and filtering information with the goal of engaging you first and foremost and building and fortifying your narrative or a narrative that's being shared with you that improves engagement. So we need to, again, be aware of are they credible what do i know about those folks am i hearing it from multiple sources can i verify it beyond social media take things with a grain of salt in particular in social media those would be my comments here's the market report brought to you by atlantic stockyards limited atlantic stockyards limited has been atlantic canada's major livestock market for over 60 years the stockyards attract buyers regionally as well as extending into central canada Livestock auctions occur every Thursday with cattle, sheep, goats, hogs, rabbits, and poultry all featured. Additional information, such as previous market reports, feeder sale dates, and vaccination forms can be found on AtlanticStockyards.com. For the week ended February 10th, 2023, and the local hog market base price in Nova Scotia was $1.84, flat from last week. An Ontario base price was flat at $1.75 per kg. The Quebec market base price was $1.68 per kilogram, up 10 cents from last week. On the cattle side, fed cattle and beef products was flat at $3.21 per pound on the rail. In Ontario, live steers sold for $1.91, up 6 cents from last week. 
Call cattle Atlantic stockyards were flat at 93 cents, while rail price Atlantic beef products was $1.80. Calls in Ontario averaged $1, up 11 cents from the prior week. Good dairy bobcats between 90 and 120 pounds, Atlantic stockyards averaged $40. And good dairy beef bobcats averaged $235, up $49 from last week. Meanwhile, calves in Ontario were up 14 cents to a price of $224 per pound. Base price for lambs at Northumberland lambs sits at $11 per kilogram, and mutton is at $6.50 per kilogram. In Ontario, 50 to 64 pound lambs average $2.97 per pound at 60 pounds, and 65 to 79 pound lambs in Ontario average $2.82 per pound at 73 pounds. In Ontario, use average $1.52 at 152 pounds. Make sure you check your association websites for additional pricing information. So maybe a bit of a follow-up question to that is, in your experience, is there a way in which we deliver or should or can deliver extension or advisory services to different types of producers? So maybe a large-scale commercial producer versus a smaller, not quite hobby, but you know they have a side job or and then to a hobbyist. Do they consume information differently? Are they primarily looking for different types of information? What What's your experience there, Steve? Yeah. So it depends on the topic and it depends on the sector a little bit is my experience. And and if I touch on topic first, if we're talking about a, you know, a rather large commercial operation and maybe a smaller one that, that to your point could be commercial or not commercial sort of you know, hands in, in a couple of different things. It, it can depend on what we're talking about. I always, I always err on the side of caution when it comes to communicating about messaging with the, you know, a careful consideration, especially if I'm asking for people to adopt something on farm or make changes to practices about whether or not they've got labor for example, that can support that change, whether they have the ability to invest in equipment or equipment already exists that's going to facilitate or necessitate some of these changes. Uh, I work a lot in the dairy industry, for example. You know, I, I want to be considerate about what kind of milking system or facility they have and that, you know, and what kind of size of herd they have. And that's going to immediately change how I'm going to communicate about an animal health issue that they might be able to experience. A good example is, is biosecurity. We'll talk about biosecurity and the importance of it. And we'll talk about, you know, it's that it's important that if we're buying new animals and bringing them into the herd, and this isn't just dairy specific by any means, that we should probably consider a type of period of isolation or quarantine. Testing records would be really nice prior to entry. And the small, the average small dairy farm is going to laugh you right out of the room, right? And say, look, I get that. I don't have the facilities to do that. I don't have the means for that. And by the way, I need the milk. And so I'm bringing that cow in tomorrow and I'm going to get moving, right? Whereas a hog producer is going to go, yeah, I'm going to do that. <laughs> you know, I would even think to do that if I didn't, right? But then there's also economies of scale that maybe change uh, the answer there a little bit. The other thing that I mentioned, dairy, you know, talk about some of the other sectors, there is a very different and real network of information depending, I think, on whether or not a commodity is supply managed or not. Just the nature of the way it's structured, the nature and the way it's built and the infrastructure that it has. So it's important to acknowledge and recognize some of the differences there. The other thing that I would suggest is that the different sectors do have have nuances. I've just been working a lot lately in the in both the in the swine sector in general around African swine fever, a disease that we are all clamoring to prepare for if and when it comes to to Canada uh, or there is a concern that it might come to Canada. And this is a commercial issue in terms of we are 
you know, exporting 50% of our pork production outside of our borders, and this is going to shut our borders down. And so the commercial uh, pork producers at any level are, you know, seriously concerned about this. We have a lot of folks that have hobby uh, uh, farms, have pet pigs, potbelly pigs. We have wild pigs. Um, these folks, not the wild pigs, the folks that own pigs are worried, uh, are not worried about ASF, and yet they may need to be, or they might be a risk to our commercial producers as a result of not being concerned about it. The point is, is that depending on the topic, depending on the sector, and depending on the type of producer, we need to tailor our message. And the science or the research, I should say, on how we communicate to producers would demonstrate that as well. We need to tailor our messaging to the audience and align both the message and how we deliver it to their preferences, which means we need to continue to understand our audiences and engage with them. Which is, brings me back into my last comment to, to people that have relationships with these folks that can broker uh, conversations, relationships, information, and knowledge. So it's a lot more than just, you know, here's the key message. Let's get it in a fact sheet and make sure we get it to all 10,000, uh, this type of farmer. It's not that simple. Uh, there's a lot of nuance to it. And we do need to consider region, type of producer, economy or scale of producer, those kinds of things. It, it's interesting they bring up African swine fever. I actually, just before this call, uh, was on a, a meeting with our provincial swine specialist and our CVO um, talking about depopulation and disposal for ASF. So we've got our ERP. And one of the things that we always circle back to, no matter what what type of discussion we're having, is engaging what we call small lot holders. So those folks that buy three or four feeder pigs in the summer, raise them through, butcher them in the fall. They might get a couple more in the fall, butcher them this time of year. But how I first of all identifying them is a challenge. Second of all, reaching them and having them reach back is a challenge. So one of the things that we've done, and I'll call it with moderate success, is typically the place where they all go is the feed store. Um, so establishing that relationship with the local Purina or Suregain to help get that information out, whether it's a fact sheet or our baby pig package. Can you do you have any thoughts on? on better engaging those small lot holders. Cause there's a lot of cases that we might not even know who they are. You know, with pig trace, we probably do like Nova Scotia, for example, we've got 10 commercial hog farms that produce 99.4% or 99.5% of the pigs, but I've got 760 people in my pig trace database. And I don't know whether or not they had a pig once, whether or not they have pigs every year, all of those things. Um, so I don't even know who my current pig producers are in Nova Scotia. Yep. We went through the same, uh, problem, have the same problem, went through the same challenge in the context of, of ASF here in Ontario. I, we just finished a project actually, um, not meant to be a plug by any means, but with the Ontario Veterinary Medical Association. And we were asked the same question by the Ministry of Agriculture. We need to get resources and information to essentially uh, smallholders is what they called them. And um, we we want to make sure that whether it's a pet pig owner or someone that's got 20 pigs or a homesteader, that they have the same type of information and uh, we can mitigate risks around this disease to the commercial industry. We don't know a lot about them, but we want you to create resources and get it to them. So we did a bit of a research project to try and figure out some of their wants, needs, and preferences and where they go to access 
this information. Social media is a big spot. This is not a group that tends to leverage their veterinarian very often. And by the way, they actually really don't, in our context anyway, they really are aversely uh, averse to to being called smallholders. They they view that as a term that uh, they've been labeled by commercial industry. They view ASF as a commercial issue, and they seem at odds actually with receiving this information, saying, "Why should I do anything about it? It's not a problem for me." The you know the commercial industry just wants to do us to do something about it because it's a problem for them. And so uh, you know, with that information, we have to turn it around and say, "Well, is this relevant for them? If so, why?" What kind of terms are they using? And so we end up doing a, a KTT project that we developed uh, videos, we developed uh, fact sheets and what we called persona profiles, where we actually talk about the wants, needs, drivers, motivating factors behind these types of folks. So we did a pet, pet pig owner profile, a homesteader profile, and a small scale producer profile. And what we did is these are small one pagers that basically communicate to veterinarians, other f- folks in industry, government. These are some of the things that, you know, mean something to these folks. This is the kind of language you should use. And these are the tools that they prefer to access information on. And then using that information, we developed resources with key messages that were tailored to those end users. So we talk about the fact that pet pig owners love their pigs. They care about the welfare of their pigs. They don't want anything bad to happen to them. And hey, by feeding and meat products, you could be putting your own individual pig at risk. And by the way, if you don't do those things, they can potentially have beneficial ramifications for the industry as well. So we have taken a lot of steps to try and understand and respond to that understanding, but it all starts there. What are the things that drive and motivate our our end user? And then how do we uh, respond in kind? And by the way, this thinking is not novel. This is how every marketer every t- everywhere has figured out how they can sell us stuff, right? They do the same things. We're all emotional people at the end of the day. We don't make a lot of decisions just by facts alone. And look at every commercial you see on on TV. That's where a lot of this is coming up from. So we take a lot of social marketing ideas and apply them and try to influence using science. Steve, you made a couple of points during this entire conversation. And it's got me thinking, I don't know if it's outside of the box or outside the planet, but is are we better off turning over extension to the media folks, right? Should we have actors delivering, you know, extension messages? And not saying exclusively, but but again, if we're talking about delivering the message, customizing the message, and I know the extension folks we work with are great folks, but sometimes we're, we can be a little sciencey too. Do we just transition this all over to to media and communications experts and give them the information to share in the best manner? I think there's no one size fits all or one solution here. I think in in some ways the answer could be yes, in the sense that it might be nice to have some folks that that have a different perspective. Their job is to to get information out and, and to share that in you know engaging ways and unique ways that are designed to get attention and, and make sure key messages stick and those kinds of things. But again, it's important to recognize that one, there can be bias if we don't perhaps control what that narrative is. Um, you know, they have different 
different mandates and different objectives and uh, don't always understand how to deliver some of these uh, these messages. And um, and so I guess what I would sum it up as is it's important to think uh, that, you know, how we can bring them into some of these conversations and utilize the platforms that they foster. But I also think it's important to the point of credibility and the, to the point of making sure that we appreciate that every uh, group of people have different preferences in how they access information that we need to take different approaches. I typically talk about the, the the gold standard for extension is the buckshot practice, which is do all things for all people, and then maybe we'll get a penetration and uptake across the population. Every project I've done and the research I've I've read outside of my own on uh, farmer preferences, for example, is that some here like podcasts, some here still like to read the, the, the scientific literature, some here never want to see that, they want to go to a meeting. And the reality is, is that there are a huge array of preferences and we need to think about tapping into all of them if we truly want to make sure messages can be shared effectively. Yeah. And I, I would just echo what Steve had said, because that was uh, the whole learning preferences and how people consume information is very personal and it, and it, and it does differ and we can't sort of blanket things. And I, and I think even during the pandemic break that we weren't able to meet face to face, there were a few producers that, that did thrive on, oh, I can actually see this webinar. I've got everything's at my fingertips. I can go back and look at it because it's been recorded, all of these types of things. And then there were other folks who really, really missed out on that face-to-face communication and connection and hands-on type of approach. So I do think there's, like Steve said, not a one-size-fits-all solution. And if there was a silver bullet to this, we would have figured it out by now. So, so I think that that's just something else to keep in mind uh, that we've got some, some things that really need to be, to be addressed. And we've got to address them different ways with different people with different approaches. Amy, you've kind of circled back a, a little bit to the, to one of the last things I'd like to touch on maybe, and that's the delivering information, whether or not it's an in-person or virtual or, uh, and virtual, I mean, Zoom meetings or webinars or pre-recorded information. Uh, I know, especially uh, with COVID, um, it's actually given us the opportunity to do a lot more activities than we typically would have done. Um, like you said early on, you don't spend as much time looking through the windshield, making your way across a province or a region to deliver workshops. The other thing that I think it's done is allowed us to archive information. So I think back to two years ago, we would have held a vaccination workshop four different places in Nova Scotia. And that would be the only time that information was available. But now what we do is we record it. And now when we have information, we've got our YouTube page or we've got those links available to producers, um, which I think has a benefit not only to us and the producer, but the extension or professional that we're using, because now we're not going back to our vets who are already pressed for having enough time to meet with their clients to deliver the same workshop over and over and over again. So I think it actually allows us to maximize that. Now, without getting on too much of a pedestal here, but at the same time, uh, both Nova Scotia and New Brunswick have recently completed our um, regional meetings. So we're required by law to have district meetings uh, across the province. So in Nova Scotia, we held them in person. In New Brunswick, we did them virtually. And really, there in either case, there wasn't a significant impact on participation pre-COVID to now. I think the difference is the different people that show up versus the number of people that show up. 
So we're missing out on a segment of the producers by doing something only in person or only online. Have you seen that with some of the work that you you're doing as well, Steve? I'd say that's pretty fair to say. And it's interesting. I mean, you know, forcing more virtual meetings through COVID was interesting. I, I was asked to do a number of focus groups, which we typically do. And, and similar to you, Brad, right? It's, it's not... Um, it's not cheap necessarily to put meetings on or to get to all of these different places to get people to take time out of their day to to come in and participate in any type of event. And then, you know, we're somewhat restricted by either the locations we choose or the people that are open to coming on that particular day. Virtual provided a lot of silver linings that way. I did a number of focus groups that would have either costed a lot to fly me all over the place or, or been restricted by region where I had farmers from every single province of Canada come together to talk to me about a, a national issue or an issue that would at least impact them at every corner of Canada. So some pretty cool opportunities there. You're right. There are some uh, preferences there that we need to take into consideration or that may influence participation. Um, I've seen a lot fewer barriers to jumping on a Zoom meeting than than I would have thought, especially across generations or across age groups. Um, there's been quite a few folks. Sure, we've got folks that can't figure out how to take uh, turn themselves off mute occasionally or get into the room. But uh, but I'll be honest, I do that half the time too. So um, those are challenges that that are part and parcel of doing those kinds of things. And again, you know, I'm, I'm planning a series of uh, workshops and, and conferences across Canada right now. And just the cost to do it is, is unbelievable. When I think about some of the savings that could be had, if we, if we do some aspects of it virtually, but you're right again, to my comment about the buckshot approach, right? Some people want to be in the room. You totally miss out on the intangibles, the side conversations, the relationships that are built. And I can tell you getting back in person, doing on-farm trainings, doing conferences, those kinds of things, there is something different to the ability to just ask the, you know, have a little side conversations, the water cool conversations that, you know, how are your kids? How are you doing? Oh, I was just here last week and this is how things are going. You know, everything with a virtual environment is scheduled and, and we're, you know, there's something lost in, in that. So at the end of the day, I think we have different participation by different folks based on preferences, based on a technical ability, those types of things, internet. But at the end of the day, I think we're actually coming out of COVID or or we sit here in 2023 in a better position in terms of the tools and options we have at our at our disposal. And it's never been easier to access information. It goes back to our earlier conversation about credibility and making time and all of those things. So for me, that's just a few things to to uh, perhaps consider when we're thinking about how we reach out and structure events. Amy, I know with the Maritime Beef Council, this has been... Uh something that you folks have always been a little bit ahead of the curve on is online events and hybrid type events. Any further thought there? I would echo everything that Steve's just said, but there is an inherent challenge to hybridity as well. If uh, we talked about it when we were talking about our Maritime Beef Conference uh, and making that strictly hybrid and the, you'd think, at least my thoughts were that a hybrid event would only be like you do 25 or 30% more work to get 200%. Like you could have it accessible by a very, very much larger pool of, of people, depending on what their preferences were. Um, but what we found once you do, sort of dug into it to do a quality hybrid event, it really is double the work. It's like two different streams. One's virtual, like, and maybe 250% of the work because you also have to make sure those separate streams 
are parallel are running parallel to each other at all times. So there is uh, there is a little bit of a of a cost a resource barrier to being able to offer a truly hybrid experience. But we've been able to juggle and get over a few. Um, tempering expectations on what that what those experiences might look like. But I think that we've done, at least with our beef school, we've decided to sort of offer one module virtually and then the other module face to face. And then by the next time the that it comes across, like Steve, you and you and your team helped us out with the nursery school there uh, virtually last time. Maybe the next time we deliver that content, we deliver it in person so that we're sort of mixing things up so that people, different people have access to different things. And you might be on the wrong schedule if you're just getting involved or, or into things, but eventually you can access it in the best way for you. Again, we've been talking about it and we talk about it all the time as to what the best way is. And there's not going to be one thing that works for everybody. So we just got to do what we do and try to get, try to do the best what we can with what we have. It's that point that, that you just made the, you know, there, there's effort on everybody's side when it comes to KTT and extension on the producer, the researcher, the industry organization that might be coordinating. None of us are, are over-resourced as far as people and money goes. So I think it's always finding that balance to reach as many people, like you say, Steve, as many people as many times as possible that makes sense. Uh, and with that, I, I know we've probably taken up more time this afternoon than any of us expected to, but I think the conversation's been really good and I appreciate everybody's uh, time and effort for joining. If our listeners want to learn more about you or the work that you do, how do they do that? Uh, for me, it would be uh, online is probably the best place. We just talked a lot about online. I promise I'm, I, I do my best to be credible anyway. Um, I'm at www.acerconsult.ca and you'll find most of our resources and some of what we do there. And, uh, and yeah, would love to, to connect with anyone who might have further questions or interest. Maritime Beef Council can be found maritimebeef.ca and uh, I can make sure that you got all the all the websites and, and email information to put in your show notes. Excellent. With that, folks, thanks very much for joining us today and uh, looking forward to future conversations. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Brad. Don't want to miss any future episodes? Subscribe to a Maritime Acast today through Anchor, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your other favorite podcast platform. This concludes another episode of Maritime AgCast. We would like to thank our producer, the Agri-Commodity Management Association, Director Ashley, as well as Matt Whitehour and Micah Dahl-Anderson of ArchesAudio.com for providing the music you heard during this episode. Until next time, happy farming and keep feeding the Maritimes. <laughs>